But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to episode 37 of the Reach Podcast. Uh, I'm checking in from Australia. I made it to Perth. A uh, little bit hectic settling in the first few weeks, hence why this podcast is late again. I should just start every podcast with apologizing for being late. But this place is incredible. The infrastructure here at Eda Cowan, um, the people here, how motivated and passionate everyone is that I work with about looking at how exercise can help different types of cancer patients, survivors, and it's just such a positive environment, and it's a great, great place to be for me, and I'm really uh, inspired by it, and kind of, um, yeah, just really excited to get going and, and keep pushing the field forward. Uh, but anyway, today I'm talking to Liz O'Reardon, or I did speak to Liz O'Reardon back in the day, I think it was last semester, but Liz is a breast cancer surgeon, who actually got breast cancer herself. And it's a really interesting chat because we talk a lot about how uh, Liz has changed how she talks to and about uh, to cancer patients and about cancer. She talks a lot about her experience getting diagnosed and how you don't typically get trained in med school what it's like to be a patient, what it's like to sit in MRI machines and go to waiting rooms and dealing with the anxiety of a diagnosis and its treatment so it's a really cool perspective to get as someone who works directly with patients every single day to also have you know received her own diagnosis gone through her treatment how that's kind of shifted her mindset how it shifts how she talks to people and Liz is actually going to release a book this year um kind of detailing this this experience and talking about um, for professionals and for patients about what it's like to go through this journey and kind of giving her her tips kind of an expansion on her blog which she currently has um, a phenomenal blog one of the best I've seen that kind of details the patient experience um, so I'll provide more details about the book in the episode but other than that just sit back and enjoy the chat and we'll chat to you soon so like I was saying to you I think you have a lot of really interesting pieces to what we're going to talk about today um, one of which or the main thing is that you are a breast surgeon that was diagnosed with breast cancer and you know from following your blog and, and listening to some of your TED talks you have such an incredible perspective that's changed now as a result of your diagnosis that now has both changed how you talk to cancer patients but also has changed a little bit of your career trajectory in terms of how you promote um, this idea of, of conversation changes. So let's start with just a little bit of a background about you um, as a surgeon, and then we'll kind of move up towards diagnosis. Okay, so I did my training in Cardiff in Wales back in 1993, and I always knew I wanted to do surgery because to me you were actually fixing people and making them better. And I, drew, I grew to love breast surgery because 
every patient is different. Every breast is different. It's quite creative. And you can do wonders to reshape and reconstruct breasts and that women are no longer disfigured like they used to be 10, 20 years ago. Plus, there's no on call. So it's an eight to six job. I get to go home and see my husband, which was an added bonus. But I love the relationship that you develop with the patients. So how long have you, had you been working as a, a breast surgeon before you got diagnosed? So I'd, I'd done about 20 years of training and I was appointed as a consultant breast surgeon. That's the highest rank in the UK. I never remember what the state's equivalent is in 2013 in May. And almost two years later in July 2015, I was diagnosed with breast cancer myself. And it wasn't um, it wasn't a quick onset. You kind of had this almost insidious progress where you were um, you were kind of feeling some things up until the point of diagnosis. Yeah, so I'd had a cyst on my other's breast, um, the right breast, about nine months before, and I'd had a normal mammogram and a normal ultrasound. And then six months after, I, in March, I'd had a cyst on the left breast and all the scans were fine. And then another lump came up a couple of months later. And I wasn't worried this time because I just thought it's another cyst. But my mum said, just go and get it checked out for my own peace of mind. And I went. And the surgeon who saw me is the consultant who trained me. She's a mentor and a friend. And she said, well, I don't know what it is, but let's get a scan. The mammogram was normal. And then they did the ultrasound and I looked at the screen and I saw a cancer. So most patients are drip fed information. They have a scan, they have a biopsy taken. It could be, it might be. But for me, the minute I saw that screen, I knew. I knew it was cancer. I knew I need chemo. I knew I'd need a mastectomy. I knew what my chance of recurrence was. And that was really hard to deal with because it was all like bang. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to talk a lot about that initial point of diagnosis. But as you were talking there, it, it is an interesting point in, when we talk about... Um, monitoring signs of of cancer particularly in women yeah i mean you're you're a you're a breast surgeon trained to recognize a lot of this stuff and even you kind of almost had that not fatigue in in oh, i've got to go back to the hospital again for another scan you can see how easy it is to miss these type of things where yes people who aren't trained then say well yeah. it's just a lump it's another one I'll, I'll forget about it and i think with breast cancer there aren't any physical symptoms like feeling tired or short of breath or tummy pain if you have bowel cancer, lung cancer, you generally feel unwell in yourself. But because the breast is external, it's basically an organ of fat outside you, it doesn't make you feel unwell. And most women only notice a lump a couple of weeks before they come to see me. And because cancers take such a long time to grow, I describe it a bit like being pregnant. Women are flat as a pancake and then suddenly there's a bump appear and it's just suddenly big enough for you to notice it. And I think when you've had cysts before, you get a bit blasé. You think, well, it can't be anything. I've had normal scans. But I had a type of breast cancer that's often quite difficult to see on a mammogram. I've talked to, it's interesting, I've talked to a few people in this area in terms of being prof professionals in oncology that have also been diagnosed. And as you said, it's you have a different understanding of the disease and of the treatments and what's going to happen. So beyond kind of like the doubt of if and what may happen you know as soon as you see that I've got all this ahead of me how how was that to receive or even just to see it you don't even need someone to tell you it was it was like a light bulb went off and it was too much for me to deal with and then I from that moment on it felt like I was floating above myself looking down watching someone else go through it because it was too much to take in 
So I had to wait a week, like most people, to get my biopsy results. But I knew it was cancer. And I rang my parents to say, I'll be telling you in a week I have cancer. This is the warning call. No, you'll be fine. And I think the problem is everyone says you'll be fine because they're praying for you to be fine. And you know you're not. It's like, don't say I'll be fine because if I'm not, it's going to be really, really hard. And one thing I hadn't realized, um, when I give good results, if it's good news, I go in by myself. But if it's bad news, I take a breast care nurse with me. And a patient pointed this out. And I told my husband, if the breast care nurse comes to get us, it's cancer. And she did. And it was. What? Who do you, how do you decide who to call? Or how far out do you call with your, with your family members to tell I've got this diagnosis? I'm sure it's, it's such an overwhelming point that, you know, parents are first. At what point do you go, well, we'll let the rest... Because you also speak about coming out on Twitter the day after and, and um, just saying, you know, screw it, everyone's got to know. Talk us through that. So I, I, I'm actually... I've got a book coming out in October, which is The Patient's Guide to Breast Cancer, written with another doctor who had chemo on the same day as me, and we were completely different. She, Her sons were older in their 20s, and one was doing um, medical volunteering work in deepest, darkest Africa, and she didn't tell anybody. She had a mild dose of chemo. She carried on working. She kept her hair. No one knew she had chemo, and she finally told people a year later writing an orthoethnographic paper because she's an academic GP. Because I was being treated in a hospital where I'd worked and everybody knew me and my husband knew me, I thought there's no way I can keep the secret. People are going to find out. And I just thought it's going to be quite lonely having breast cancer because you don't meet anyone else. And I'm not ashamed of it. And maybe if and I don't think I can go nine months without talking about it on Twitter. I can't not talk. It's going to become my life. And I, I had to talk to my husband to say, if I tell the world I have cancer, then they know your wife has cancer and you're happy with that. And I swear it was the best thing we did. Within minutes, we had hundreds of messages pouring in from people I'd never met. And it meant my husband and I could both get the support. And it's opened so many doors. Because as a doctor, you tell people what, they, what you're going to do to them. You don't tell them how to cope because you don't know how to cope because you've never had it. And that's the support I got from the patient community on Twitter. Yeah, I, I mean, reading your blog, it it is one of the most comprehensive blogs I've come across in terms of the patient perspective, because you also have the ability to convey a lot of the medical terms in lay language and explain yeah. the treatments in a way that people can understand. But also then you have the patient perspective of, damn, you know, today sucked and I'm tired of feeling yeah. tired and... and just your timeline from diagnosis and and all the way up to where you're at now, I, I really appreciate. Uh, was that a was that kind of a conscious decision to start the blog? Was it in addition to Twitter and how did that come? Well, it was my husband. I I'd done a couple of blogs about um, dealing with complaints and some other things that had happened as a surgeon, and my husband said, "Why don't you start a blog?" And my parents moved to Scotland, which is about eight hour drive a month before I was diagnosed. So they were very distant. And my brother lives in Switzerland. And I thought if I blog, it's a way for them to keep up with what I'm doing. But it really was a way for me to make it seem real because all the way through chemo, I was in denial. I can't have cancer because I know how bad it can be. I'm not going through this. It's not happening. And then when people started commenting, I realized I can actually use the blog to educate people and carry on helping people. A lot of blogs are sensationalist is the wrong word because people write them with the emotions they're feeling. But it can be the slash poison burn. Cancer is bad. Treatment is horrible. And it's not that bad. And you do get through it. And if I can 
demystify to make it seem less scary and help people and say, hands up, this is really shitty, but here's how you cope. And it was a way of, I guess, supporting me and knowing I can carry on almost being a doctor in a way. What I really appreciate about that is the realistic perspective of it in that it is what it is uh, because of uh, uh, similar to you, I've kind of experienced um, the attitude towards it can be really, really negative or it can almost be the, the false positive. And, uh, you know, talking to a lot of terminal patients, they they don't really want that. For, you know, like you said, you'll be fine. You just just say how it is. You know, this treatment sucks at the minute. And for you, you kind of had the perspective and, and it sucks. I'll get through it. But yeah, people tend to with that false positivity it's almost like trying to brush over the severity of it what it is and what you're going yeah. through. and I think so I'd never known anyone with cancer before I was the first person in my network of family and friends and when you've never met someone you don't know what to say it's like the first time your friend loses their father or, or a parent you don't know what to say when they die because it's a new experience and people want you to be well, because if you say you feel like shit, they need to stay and pick up the pieces and don't know how to help you. And I learned that because people get very upset, oh, you'll be fine, or my grand had this and she was okay. And it's just, they don't know what to say, but at least they're saying something. It's teaching people to say not, you'll be fine, but hi, I'm here if you need a hug, how are you? And it, it's changing the language, but people just don't know. You're not tall this at school. What do you tell someone who's got cancer? And we're especially the terminal people. When people say you'll be cured, you're fighting and think I'm not you don't die of cancer because you lost the fight. You die because medical science lost the fight. And that whole battle terminology just I find really frustrating. But as a doctor, it didn't bother me. Yeah. And it's only until you're in that patient perspective that you understand. I'll hold my hand up and I'm one of the ones that have been. This is your journey and you're fighting. And it wasn't until I came across enough people that were angry and going, this isn't a journey. I don't want to, my journey is towards a nice holiday beach somewhere. I don't, yeah. you know, yeah. so it's an interesting dialogue there. And I think the more we have these conversations, the more medical professionals will really understand that. I think, you know, the likes of your book, it's not just a patient oriented book. I think professionals need to understand. And the press, the publicity and the media, because they're the main culprits. Olivia Newton-John is battling recurrent breast cancer and she's a fighter and, no, she's not really, but it's, yeah. Um, so did you experience a lot of uh, kind of fatigue from your, your friends and family in terms of empathy towards you throughout treatment in kind of having, were you having the same conversations over and over again of, you know, yeah, it's chemo, it sucks, or, or were they just continuously there for you? Or what were some challenges there? I think most of my close family and friends were amazing. And like I said in my TED talk, just just texting me to say hi I'm thinking of you but it's people I'd not seen since I was seven at school who was suddenly knitting me a Barbie doll with a Wonder Woman outfit and sending me a coloring book and people I hadn't spoken to in years who just thought I'm touched I want to send you something um what I did find quite hard was because in chemo you have bad weeks and good weeks and the good weeks you go out for coffee and I was the topic of conversation all people wanted to talk about was the cancer and how are you? It's morbid curiosity. And actually, I'm Liz. I'm not a cancer patient. I want to know about the gossip and fill me in on everything that's happening. And there's a time we want to say, can we stop talking about it, please? Because I live this world every day and this is my escape. And it's you don't want to be rude and say, actually, can you not talk about it? Because you're grateful to be out with the company. Yeah. 
So you actually made a really interesting decision to decide to do a sprint triathlon during yes. chemotherapy. So, uh, you know, you're, you're, I'd imagine you were previously active. Walk us through that decision in, in why you decide to maintain as much activity as you can and then why you decide to do a try. Yeah. So I was the girl at school that got out of sport that didn't do it. My maiden <laughs> name is Ball and I can't throw, catch, hit one to save my life. I didn't. I joined gyms and never went. And then my husband, when we were dating, started cycling. And I thought, if I don't start cycling, I'll never see him because he cycles all morning and sleeps all afternoon. <laughs> so within a within a year, I did a hundred mile bike ride. And then I got bored of cycling and I read every triathlon magazine going because I used to swim and I'd done the London Marathon. And my husband got bored of me reading magazines and entered me to do an Olympic triathlon on my fortieth birthday, and I did it. And I love the variety and the challenge of all three sports. I love the medals because I'm shallow. <laughs> and I signed up to do a half Ironman in September, but I was diagnosed with cancer in July. And that's when I realized that there is no information for athletes or sporty people about how to carry on training during cancer treatment. All the UK medical charities like Macmillan and Breast Cancer Care say, ask your doctor if it's safe to exercise. I've never had any training. I say what I heard my boss say or what I think might be common sense. And most doctors don't do any sports, so they don't get the adrenaline you get of actually being outside in the fresh air, not letting cancer beat you. So I turned to Twitter and I found quite a few cyclists and rowers who'd had chemo and said, you can carry on training. You just need to be sensible and listen to your body. And I thought, right, I don't want to waste away. I'm 40. So I went to my local gym and I found a great personal trainer. And once a week I did body weight exercises, lunges, squats, just to keep things going. And I was there with my bald head dripping in sweat with the hot flushes. And I cycled to chemo on my good days very slowly. I started doing park runs, which is a free 5K course in parks. Anyone can turn up once a week. And I did those. The hard bit was realizing how slow I was and not looking at my previous times on Strava and saying, look, you're doing it. And then my local cycling club had a sprint triathlon, a pool-based one. And I thought, I want to do this. And I asked them and I said, I'll be very slow. And if I get sick, I'll stop. But please. And they were fantastic. And because it was a pool-based try, the slowest swimmers went off first. So even though I was one of the last to finish, I wasn't, people weren't waiting for me. And I walked, I ran and I cycled and swam every step of the way. And it took me about two hours. But the sense of achievement and pride, I was crying as I crossed the line. My husband was crying. And the photo of me from that triathlon has now gone into Chrissy Wellington's latest book about showing you can do anything. And I carried on training during that, but it got harder and harder with chemo. But the hard thing was chemo affects your heart rate and your training zones. And when you're used to doing certain training sessions, no one really knows what's right and what's wrong for you. And that's when I, after radiotherapy, I needed some sunshine. And I'd signed up with my husband to try and do an amazing bike ride called the Maratona, which is in the Dolomites. It's about 5,000 meters of climbing all up or all down, but there's a short ride. And my husband dragged me around and I went on a cycling course and met an amazing cycling coach whose dad had had pancreatic cancer, who's now sadly died. And she trained him. And she now coaches me. And a year after chemo, she got me to do a half Ironman. And I didn't do any brick training. I didn't do it by the books. It was listening to my immune system, forgetting my times and saying, we're going to get you around safely. And it's something I never thought I'd do. But actually, you can get back. 
the idea that there's no information out there for athletes because uh, this is my gripe and and I'll, I'm an I'm an academic researcher and I we publish these guidelines and say you know 150 minutes per week or you've got the the different uh, cancer societies who will have these activity groups and it's so it's so low intensity and it's just focused on getting people active and it's brilliant for the people that it's meant for in getting sedentary people active and working up with intensity but there's still a large population of people who are athletes who are elite level that if you were to turn around and say well 150 minutes of moderate intensity i'm already doing 300 minutes so now what do i do and I think there needs to be more conversation and even more research investigating what it's like to be an athlete going through treatment. There's a, you can do a lot more than you think, but the problem is athletes are type A personalities. Yeah. And I know a couple of friends, um, she's actually come back faster than she ever was before, but she was doing four hour bike rides and two hour fast runs after chemo because I have to keep my fitness up. And you have to realize that you have to rest and recover because chemo is killing your body. You need to recover. You can't carry on. And when she then started back with her coach, when she finished chemo, he said, right, we're going to start with half hour sessions. What? Four hours? No, half hour. And you almost rebuild the body again and take it as a chance to do the strength and conditioning flexibility work. But you can do HIIT training. You can work hard, but just a shorter amount of time. Um, and there's a great Anna. God, I can't remember her name. Um, the company's called Can Rehab. She's Anna Campbell. An, yeah, so I'm going out to Club La Santa with her in April. They take Danish cancer patients to Club La Santa and they train them hard. They do a triathlon at the end of the week. Brilliant. And I've just done a survey with Lucy Gossage. Yep. Who's the UK's top female um, Ironman. And she gave me my medal when I finished my half triathlon. And she knows my coach. And we've just done a survey with over 400 responses of athletes just asking where did you get your information from during treatment? What did you do? Was it enough? What would you like to know? So I think there's there's a need and a thirst for it. But I think athletes need to be given sensible information to rest and recover and ignore your previous PBs. But you can keep training. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, so kind of as an aside, I'm, I'm bringing out a manual um, for health professionals working in this area, um, hopefully towards the end of this year. But the premise is that I want to expand on the guidelines in, you know, in a nutshell, all of the academic resources say 150 minutes per week, but in, that- in the trenches, the con- there's so many nuances, nuances based on what treatment you have, what cancer site you have, um, yeah. whether you're an athlete or not. And the, funny yeah. enough, the whole chapter during treatment, exercise during treatment is focused on listening to your body in that. Yeah. You're, especially with the fluctuations of fatigue and nausea, you're going to have great days where you can kind of bump it up and you feel good. You yeah. have to manage fatigue a lot better. And as you said, the as athletes, we're bred to think about metrics. And last week I was squatting 200. Why can't I do my body weight yeah. now? Yeah. Um, but it's interesting you say that because that's that's such a big area that needs better communication. In if if you were you get a diagnosis and you're training five six days a week you can still maintain a high level of activity it's just got to be tailored to how you're feeling and not the little ladies who swim classes and and chair to walking aerobics you can do proper exercise i don't think doctors are the right people to tell patients because as a doctor you have so much information to give about the cancer treatment tagging on exercise is and especially for me in breast cancer we 
often chemo makes you menopausal, the tablets make you gain weight, and I say you have to lose weight and exercise to reduce the risk of recurrence. And I'm sorry you've got cancer, but now stop eating cake and get your get off your ass and start walking. And it's hard when you're a slim, sporty person because they go, well, it's easy for you. Look at you. And it's, do you get the nurses or the primary care physicians or is it just cancer charity led? I don't know who the right person to give that information is. That's interesting. We... And when is the right time to give the information as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's going to, I mean, that will vary a lot based again on the severity of the diagnosis and, yeah. and a lot of factors. We, I mean, this is a, a regular discussion in I mean, if you, you, you go to ACSM, we have a whole section devoted to exercise oncology. And a regular conversation is, is who, whose role is it? And there's now a better appreciation for, if you've got 15 minutes with your patient, you've got to address these six issues, and then they've got four questions. That's it. The, yeah. the, all you can do is have a passing comment and, hey, think about your activity. And we're, we're really appreciating the fact that it's not. What your role is, or what we think the biggest strength is, getting the buy-in. Yeah. And the biggest contrast here uh, I can give you is here at OSU, we have a few different oncologists and um, a few different cancer sites. One um, isn't as active himself. And another guy, uh, he is he has his own personal trainer and he actually reached out to us to look to do an exercise study. The first guy, the way he talks to patients is, hey, we've got this study, you might want to be interested in physical activity. The other guy the way he speaks them is is activity is a powerful tool yeah. to help you during treatment and this is going to be a part of your care so yeah. even just how you talk the same amount of time but the message is different and that's going to place yeah at the end of the day patients particularly people who don't aren't familiar with the field are going to see us as personal trainers they're going to see us as pe coaches basically so yeah. it's it's on the the medical staff to understand their role and and give them an understanding of, of these are people who are trained in your disease and this is what we can do and patients trust you and how you sell it and if you think well exercise you could do it if you wanted but oh the doctor's not pushing it therefore i won't bother whereas if you're really proactive patients trust us and we all the, the thing i was shocked to discover was that exercise can halve the side effects of chemo yeah Exercise is the best thing to treat cancer-related fatigue. Incredible. We know that, but how do you encourage patients to do it? Um, how do you get the message out there? I don't know. It's very, very hard. Yeah, I mean, it's way forward. That's that's. <laughs> we could have a whole series on that because again, we've got. Um, I kind of have a, a decent blend between. Uh, the physiology and behavior side where I'm really interested in the mechanisms and you talk about exercise as medicine and how it affects tumor biology and the vasculature of tumors and treatment yeah. delivery. But also, I've got one foot in the behavioral world and, and the mechanisms are cool, but if we can't get people to do it, it's irrelevant. Um, so it's it's a really interesting dynamic in, in what the best way forward is. And we we kind of make this call for it to be a standard of care similar to cardiac rehab. Like an exercise prescription. Yeah, and have this phased approach where, you know, I, I tell athletes to think of your your cancer treatment almost as your season. In, you know, as soon as you're diagnosed, that's your preseason. The fitter yeah. you go into preseason before your, your treatment the, the better your your season's going to be the less injuries yeah. during yeah. seasons it's just about maintaining you're not going to see the huge improvements yeah over. and then in your off season in terms of risk of recurrence that's where you start to build fitness and and yeah. 
um, that analogy tends to resonate well but again you've got the minority athletes how do you get someone with two or three other comorbidities and a bad knee and a bum shoulder I mean I know and it's a different level but it's almost they're the people who need it I mean we we know exercise reduces the risk of recurrence in breast cancer by itself forget about diet and weight yeah and it's really hard to make to get that habit to make them do it I think group exercise and doing it with other people can help because you you don't if you don't turn up you're letting a friend down. I think that can be a really strong motivator for people who aren't who don't normally exercise. But it is hard, especially when it's cold and it's dark and it's wet, and then you don't do it today, and then I won't do it tomorrow, and then a week's gone by, and oh, and we a lot of our interventions harness that group dynamics in. We'll we'll exercise once a week, um, but after the exercise, there's a group of six to eight people who are all have the same cancer diagnosis and are all going through treatment. And instead of us standing up and saying, this is what you're feeling, this is what you need to be doing, we give it to them. And we say, well, here's your challenges. Because then they can say, well, I had nausea and this, you know, everything tastes like shit, everything tastes like metal, yeah. and this is what I managed to eat. That peer-led discussion tends to increase self-efficacy and autonomy, as opposed to us saying, "We, we don't know what it like. We don't exactly. know what it's like for everything to taste like metal." You've never had it, and it's horrible. I, I had no idea what it was like to actually have cancer treatment. So, how has that changed? Then you're back working and, and yeah. you're you're in the clinic. How has that changed now? How you talk to patients? What was it like before, and what's the biggest difference now? I think. You're aware, so I used to break bad news 10 times a day. I'd spend the morning telling people they had cancer and then the afternoon telling them it had come back, they needed chemo. And you have a set pattern that you list and you you have your set phrases. But when you're the patient, you remember every single detail of that conversation. I can tell you what I was wearing, what my consultant was wearing, what the weather was like, every single word she said, what it was like waiting. And it's a big deal. And you remember every little word. And it's made me think, so you often say, um, it's good we caught it early, but no cancer is good to have. And whenever we consent people for surgery, you go through the long list of complications. And I'd often say, um, if you're happy to go ahead, sign the form. No one's happy to have cancer and sign an operation to have their breast taken off or lose a bowel. So it's made me very aware of the language I use. I'm also, it was quite upsetting for me when I first did it because I see the people opposite me crumble. I see them, the head sinks, they swallow, they take a deep breath, it kind of stiff up a lip and you think that's what I look like. And it's very hard distancing myself. And what, I'm, I, what I don't want to do is interfere with them when they first find out because they have to go through their journey themselves. It's like you have to find your own experiences. You don't want to hear about anyone else having cancer because you want to go through it yourself. But what I'm now doing is seeing patients who come back after a year. And that's when I can actually say, I've had this. I know what it's like to have the menopause. I now talk about sex with patients because no one else does. I talk about exercise. I say, I know what it's like to wake up every day thinking, is this a cough I need to worry about? And my husband doesn't get it. And that's been really nice for those patients to realize that I get it. And actually, it's the survivorship It's the living after the doctor says goodbye that is the hardest thing. And if I can help patients stay healthy and active and get them empowered, I think I'm doing so much more than merely doing the surgery and passing them on to someone else. That's a really powerful statement because 
we talk about kind of uh, the stiffness and almost coldness that medical professionals can have. And part yeah. of it is almost trained in that you need to maintain boundaries. But then it can go too far and go, and this person's giving me a diagnosis of cancer that's changing my life. And they just, they're just, they don't care. You know what I mean? So I can only imagine the, the power that then has to you ha- being able to have that empathy and go beyond just kind of the, the delivery of the information. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard. You you meet people for the first time. It's not like you come to see me, you've got some bleeding or you've got tummy pain. I do a scan, you come back for the results. Often I meet people for the first time and I say, hello, you've not met me before. You've got cancer. So you have to be very good at reading the body language of the patient and whoever they brought with them, because some women will walk out, run out the room screaming and others are very right. OK, cancer diary tomorrow and others just fall in a heap. And you have to kind of judge how much to give them. And everyone's got very different personalities. And you sometimes you just want to wrap them in cotton wool and give them a hug. But I need to be the bad guy because I may be the one because actually it has come back. And you do make mistakes. You don't get it right with everybody. And it, it's a constant learning curve. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I've no experience in delivering that type of information. How Do you have, I, I don't want to say a set time, but you're on a time schedule. Does it get yeah. to the point where you're like, I'm trying to work through this, but I've also got other patients seeing, and yeah. how difficult is that? So breast cancer isn't predictable. You don't know how many cancers you're going to get a week. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's 10. And our clinic appointments are 10 to 15 minutes long. And if you've got five cancers, a cancer diagno- a cancer discussion, especially involving reconstruction, can take anywhere up to an hour. And you just have to accept that patient needs the best of my time. And I apologize to everyone who's waiting, but you can't rush it. Yeah. And it is really hard, but you just have to focus. You, you'll, you'll get home three hours late and everyone in the waiting room is pissed off because they've been waiting. But you can't rush something like that. Yeah. And it's really frustrating when you when you you are running late and I, 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 there's got to be a, on, on their side they're just kind of going like no I, I need more information and I need you know there, there's just when you get that there's just a feeling yeah. of, of like what, I need I need more worst bit is sitting in the waiting room waiting to be called in to get the results yeah and you see people coming out smiling you see people coming out crying and you're wondering will it be me and your time, I mean, most hospitals are running over late anyway, but if, you, if you're an hour late, you've had an extra hour of, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Once you find out, it's almost a relief. Okay, this is what it is. I'm going to ignore everything you tell me because I'm still digesting you have cancer and it'll sink in when I go home. But that sat in the waiting room, waiting to find out whether you have cancer. That's the worst bit. When you're, because it's the week between the biopsy and the results with the internet at your fingertips. And I know everything there is to know about breast cancer. And I was on the website, stage four breast cancer. When will I be dead? It's this morbid curiosity because you're desperate for information. Yeah, I mean, get a week. Were you still working during that week? No, I wasn't. Um, I was very lucky. I I saw my consultant on the... No, I, yes, I was actually. I saw my consultant on the Tuesday um i had the biopsy on the tuesday and i got my results on the friday um they managed to get preliminary results through early for me although i knew it was cancer but i had a clinic on the wednesday and i had an operating list on the thursday and it was the hardest thing i have ever done to operate on a woman thinking this is going to be me in a week wow and i do i got through that list 
but you can't ring in sick because you don't know where you have cancer. You just have to carry on. And people do. They carry on with their lives whilst they're waiting. And is is this the type of information that's in, in your book that's coming out in, in trying to yeah. give people so, that perspective? I didn't realize that patients bought books. And I've never <laughs> read a patient blog. I didn't realize blogs existed. I naively thought I give them all the information they need. But we don't tell you how to cope because we've never been through it. How do you decide whether you want a new breast? How do you talk about sex with your husband? And I discovered blogs. And I, between the author and I, we bought about 20 books, just other patient books saying, what was it like? And this patients ask really scary questions on forums. It's like they don't understand any of the information. There's a lot of old wives' tales. There's also a lot of the snake oil, the diets, the vitamin C enemas and the turmeric and the ketogenic diet, which is all rubbish. And so what we've done is go through the emotions and how you cope from waiting to be diagnosed, cancer treatment. We talk about sex, relationships, food, exercise, diet, moving on. LGBTQ people, old people, men, the whole gamut, but it's the emotional, psychological and physical part of breast cancer because we've been there and we've had every treatment between us. Was it a difficult book to write given that you're revisiting a lot of those emotions? Yeah, and I think the hardest bit for me was writing the chapters about moving on and recurrence and dealing with secondary breast cancer. I know that I've got about a 65% chance of being here in 10 years, although that's always based on old data because you need 10 years of data to get a 10 year recurrence and new treatments come. But it's that reminder that this could be me and I might not be here in 10 years. And, but it's also empowering to be aware that there are treatments happening and it's not as bad as you think, but it was painful revisiting it because you can't remember chemo a year down the line. And I look at photos of me bold and think I don't recognize myself. And it's weird going back and rereading it thinking, crikey, that really did happen. Any any long-term side effects you're still kind of dealing with now in terms of maybe exercise yeah. tolerance and capacity? or So I still get fatigue. If I do a long session or I do a full long day at work, I am knackered the next day, and that's three years on. I think that's quite common for people. From an exercise point of view, my resting heart rate is about 50. It was about 65 before, and I, there's no way I'm an elite athlete with a resting heart rate of 50, <laughs> and I think one of the problems the autonomic nervous system can be affected by taxanes and chemo and then left-sided radiotherapy and that makes training and heart rates quite hard and it can be hard to push when you're kind of the ftp kind of level sweet spot zone four you're trying to push up a hill and your heart just can't quite get there and it's hard to relearn what your new training levels are i've also got chronic pain after the mastectomy and shoulder stiffness which is something that you learn to live with but is a frustrating dealing with that new exercise capacity and tolerance and even fitness yeah it is you want to be fitter faster um and for me going back to work was knackering and I couldn't train and work at the minute so I'm just focusing on cycling because I can't do three sports and work and it's working out what your priorities are but it just takes longer to get your levels back but instead I'm doing more flexibility work and yoga and kind of building everything from scratch properly did you struggle? Did you struggle with any sort of uh, motivation in in having a few rough weeks or months in terms of not getting as much activity as you'd like? Yeah, I did. So after radiotherapy, I was just completely exhausted. And also, if you get infections, I got a cold, which turned into bronchitis for five weeks. And you try to train. Normally, if you have a cold, you can go for a run or a ride, and then you're fine. But it just wiped me, and I had to learn to say no. You need to take two months off. 
to fully recover because your body isn't ready. And then it's hard to get the motivation to get going again. And you think you're fine, you'll do a quick two hour ride and you're turning home after half an hour. And it's just giving yourself a break and saying you're a different person and you don't need to prove it to anybody. You almost want a post-cancer Strava. These are all my post-cancer times and this is okay. So you don't compare yourself to the old person. But the Taipei athletes, it's very hard to ignore what you used to do. As you're talking there, you're kind of talking about um, the the issues with shoulder range of motion and stiffness, the mastectomy yeah. and losing your hair. And we talk about body image is almost a taboo topic, but is faced by a lot of breast cancer patients, uh, yeah. particularly women, because unfortunately judged on appearance did you did you experience any of that at all or, or what was your kind of mindset with that I found I was almost excited to see what I looked like bold <laughs> in a way. and I didn't wear a wig I had fun with it I had Turkish shaves and men's barbers and put tattoos on and I I didn't mind being bold but when I lost my eyelashes and eyebrows I found that really difficult because it's not being able to put mascara on and make yourself look female you just feel like an alien with no fe- with no features I found that really hard I had a mastectomy and reconstruction, so I woke up with an implant. I didn't lose my breast, but I didn't realize that the breast is completely numb. It has no feeling. There's no point in my husband touching it because it doesn't work. And then the weight gain that you can have, the leg swelling, you just don't look at yourself in the mirror anymore. You don't. It's very rare that you feel sexy or attractive or confident especially with the menopause and the hot flushes and it's really hard to accept this is the way I look now and I can't change it and I have to deal with it and a lot of athletes find especially with the menopause you have to train twice as hard just to maintain your weight if you want to lose weight and get toned you have to really double it but the fatigue makes it hard to do that and it's that battle of accepting you're alive you have a body that works is really really hard yeah, because Makes as sense. an athlete, you're bred to think that I don't want to be average. And you want that fit look, you want the fast, you want the muscles, you want to be toned. And it's like, I can't get there. And I don't have the energy or the stamina to do that because I'll be starving myself and killing myself. But I don't like where I am. And it's just, you've had cancer. It's not your fault. You have to accept it. And I think once you give yourself the peace of mind to say, this is okay, things may suddenly get a lot easier because you stop fighting and accepting it. But it is very hard. Yeah, you, you, you kind of keep coming back to that point of just giving yourself a break and, and the relief that comes from just being like, it is what it is and it yeah. sucks, but, but there's nothing you can do about it and stressing yourself out is only going to make things so much worse. I guess it's a bit like the five stages of grieving. So the, um, the denial, the anger, the guilt, until you finally get to acceptance. And I think a lot of cancer patients are still in that, why me? It didn't really happen. I want to reverse the clocks. I hate who I am now. And that can take sometimes two, three, four, five years. And there's been a lot of work done on post-traumatic stress disorder in cancer patients, just because they can't move on. They're stuck in this circle of guilt and anger and denial. The book, I think, is going to change a lot of people's lives do you do you think there could be more done in medical school to address these type of issues of the patient perspective? Because I, I, yeah. I was listening to an interview or reading it where you were kind of saying, I didn't know what it felt like to sit in an MRI naked with, yeah. uh, you know, fish oil, cod liver oil over your over your nipples. That's just nipples, yeah, that's right. Do you think there could be more done to t- kind of educate upcoming professionals on that perspective and what it's like to be yeah. a patient? 
So I've done quite a lot of talks to medical schools and universities and junior doctors trainees to give them, I guess, the warts and all opinion. And I think medical school, you're focused on learning facts to pass exams because that's your priority. And then as junior doctor, you're working out how to be a doctor and you don't really care what happens to the patients. You just want to get the diagnosis right, get the information. And then when you're at the top of the consultant, you're looking after the patients, but you don't really think about what's happening to them. You're just doing your job. And I now tell medical students, I want you to go away and read blogs of patients who have every illness you're studying to see what it's actually like to be pregnant and have breast cancer or have a heart attack or diabetes or Parkinson's. And actually take the time to sit with a patient in a clinic to see what it's like to sit there for two hours or go to see an MRI. There's a great film with John Hurt. In the 80s, he, got th he was a doctor who got throat cancer and he had a load of junior doctors and he made them all go and have all the tests he was having. And they're all in this room, all in hospital gowns, having tubes passed down every orifice and hole. And it was amazing to see them think, oh, OK. Wow. We yeah. Dog, I can't remember the name of it. We were arrogant doctors and now we realize what it's like to be naked on a trolley, not knowing anyone, not knowing what's going on. And I try and tell them the reason you treat, you go into medicine is to look after people. Patients are people. And I say, you will be a patient yourself one day. You have to walk in their shoes to get what it's like. But it's hard to get them to see the importance of that when they're so busy trying to cram facts. It's interesting, the parallels, because I, I see the same in... I could, you know, look again, looking at introductions to some of your interviews, people are saying Liz isn't your typical medical professional. She isn't your typical uh, surgeon where she has a quote unquote personality. You're willing to go out there and talk to people and, and be yeah. relatable and accessible. And there there is this kind of in academia and, and medicine, there's kind of like a us and them. And, you know, the boundary there, I can understand why it's there, but people take it too far and remove yep. your personality completely you know and and ultimately like patient engagement and getting people to trust you and build that rapport is personality i think when i was growing up and being trained it was the doctors are way up here and the patients are way down there doctors are experts we tell patients what to do and with the onset of the internet and social media that's almost turned upside down completely because patients now often know a lot more about their illnesses than we do i know a lot of things about most types of breast cancer, but my patient may be an expert in her particular type because she has access to the internet, research trials, conferences. And I think it's doctors realizing that you're not the experts, you're on an equal setting. It's a bit like Kate Granger. Have you heard of the Hello My Name Is campaign? No. So she was an amazing um, geriatrician who was diagnosed with a um, metastatic pelvic sarcoma, I think at the age of 29. She had chemo on the same day as me. She died a couple of years ago. But she said when she was being treated, the only person who said hello was a porter coming to take her for a scan. The doctors, the nurses, the medical students just came in, did their things and went. And it's just redressing that balance that doctors and patients are on an equal level and just saying hello and introducing yourself and every other person in that room so you're on an equal level. And I think social media is helping break that down as more doctors are integrating with patients. So the, um, Deanna Attai is a fab breast surgeon in the States who runs a tweet chat for breast cancer patients. And patients can ask questions, she'll correct information, she'll give them advice, she'll, and I do that a bit here. And I think as doctors, I think they're scared that patients will stalk them, the fear yeah. of social media, and it's it's hard. And 
if you say something, then as your trust following you up, you can't talk about patients, you have to be very careful. But I think we need to accept that we can talk to patients that way. And it's okay. And they just want help. And they're not going to bombard you with information. And it's just, it's merging that together. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I I love that. I, I mean, everyone I meet, patients or professionals, and I'm particularly strong about it in academics with my colleagues and with upcoming students in if if you can get a harness on twitter the the power of that to connect people even yeah. you know us with with the oncology field there's so many people out there and it's not just sharing a link to a paper it's it's actual conversation and sharing the nuances of that research and giving you your personal perspective and that's where i think the the power of social media comes in in, in showing your personality and being able to talk to patients as a person, you know, as it's someone that imagine they're your relative instead of yeah. just kind of, I, I don't know, I, I, people view it differently, but I, I've never been one to kind of go, you know, here's a link, read the study. People aren't consuming information that way. They want to show yeah. that you have a personality. They want to see that you can give them the snippet from the paper and if they want yeah. to read it, you know, things like that. Yeah. The conversations you have on Twitter are fascinating because I've tuned into a couple of them. There's, they're almost mediated by like a hashtag, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, what is it? BCW. The B, BCCWW is the UK one, which is Breast Cancer Care Worldwide. In the States, it's BCSM, which is Breast Cancer Social Media. And they run hourly tweet chats where you just log on and they'll often pick a topic and they'll talk about it. And it's great just to drop in and guide and advise. It's hard as a doctor because you can't give medical advice and yeah. you have to be seen not to be giving medical advice. But you And you do get some crazy patients who pick up on things and say, you said this, but they say that's wrong. And it, it's kind of learning when to back off and you're not. Also, I realized everybody wanted my support to ask questions and you realize I was spreading myself very thin and it's not my job to be a doctor to the world. Yeah. I'm a patient myself and it takes time to find your boundaries, but it is the most amazing tool. Yeah. And I encourage anyone. So if you're on Twitter or even if you're not on Twitter, you can go on and, and if you put that little pound sign or hashtag and put in, um, those, those letters we just spoke about and log in and you see patients, doctors, physical therapists, everyone and anyone got to do with that specific topic are all just chatting away and it's it's you know when we talk about go back to the group dynamics we talk about with our research that's group dynamics online yeah. that's peer-led yeah. conversation online and it's the, the the beauty of social media and changing the scope of that conversation and that you don't need a lot of resources just go on no, log on have a people now live tweet conferences yeah the big cancer conference in Miami I couldn't afford to go but there were people live tweeting with pictures of slides and patients can get access to that for free what is the latest research in my cancer what do I need to ask my doctor they can ask the doctors who are tweeting what did they say you can interact with it's amazing that is fascinating because you know you go to the conferences even as recent as six or seven years ago and people have you're not allowed to have pictures you're not allowed to have videos and now everyone has their phones up with the screens and even the presenters have their twitter handles and all that type of stuff I know but it's quite distracting when you're talking because no one's looking at you. Everyone's looking at their phone. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't speak too much, so I'm the one with the phone. Um, so how has how has this been? I'm sure it's been an incredible uh, kind of transition now to to now educating people on that patient patient perspective. It seems like this is really a big passion of yours. How has that been for you and yeah. getting to travel and talk about this stuff? The first time I did it was terrifying, and that was to a little. Um, 
an IT company called Cerner in Europe. And it was a month after radiotherapy and it was the first time I'd spoken. And that was really, really hard. And I was crying and my husband was crying. But after that, I'm not talking about myself. Although I'm sharing very personal details and I've got some very moving images behind me, I've kind of moved on. And I know, I know how to work a room. I know I can make people cry and laugh when they go, I've got it. And these are the take home points I want you to go away with. And I love the power of giving a talk and people come up and say, thank you. I want to change this. I want to do that. That really resonated with me. And I talk about not just cancer, but burnout and stress, coping when things go wrong. And just if I can help people take away and make their life better as a doctor to make their patients' lives better. And I've got seven or eight talks coming up in the next two or three months. It's ridiculous. But it's great being able to share that knowledge. And people listen because I've been on both sides. I, I love that. And I love just your personality lends itself to people that want to listen to you. And, and it's so engaging Thank and all your talks. But you're also really active on live, which is, which is great. So where can people find you? Where, what's your Twitter handle, your website and blog and all that stuff? So my Twitter handle is at Liz underscore O'Riordan. O-R-I-O-R-D-A-N. My website is liz.arirdon.co.uk. Um, if you just Google breast surgeon with breast cancer. Now, I've not blogged for about a year. I stopped when I was going back to work and writing the book. And I just felt I need some headspace to be a breast surgeon again, not a breast patient. But I'm about to start blogging about going back to work and IT projects and sport. And so watch this space. Even, I, I mean despite the fact that you're not live blogging about a patient I will and I'll kind of reiterate what I said at the start despite the fact that it's a few years old it remains one of the best blogs I've seen in capturing the emotion of what it's like to be a patient so I encourage people to go on there and check out that blog because y- y- you can almost sit there with you and experience some of those feelings um, so when what tell us about the book when's it coming out what's going on The book's coming out in October. It's called The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer. Um, You can actually pre-order it on Amazon now. Um, We're hoping it'll be the only book that people need, but it's also for families and friends to understand what their female relatives and male relatives are going through so they can understand why they feel like they're feeling and how they can help. Because it was, I think it was harder for my husband to watch me go through treatment than it was for me because I was just on a roller coaster doing what I was told. He said he felt impotent and he's a surgeon. He said, I can't do anything. I can't make you better. I just have to sit and watch. And I was the one getting all the flowers and presents and no one gave him cards. And I think it's just as hard for the relatives. And that's partly why I wrote the blog. So family and friends can understand what they're going through. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be such a valuable resource for so many different, you know, patients, siblings yeah. and professionals. So I look forward to getting it. Um, and encourage everyone to kind of stay up with Liz. I think you, your blend of a professional and patient is, is phenomenal. I think you do a great job of sharing information online. So um, I really do appreciate you. Hang on the line. Uh, we're going to chat a little bit. But I do appreciate you stopping by and chatting and giving such a, a great insight into what it's been like for you. Thanks, Kieran. Great to chat.